0: Welcome to Two Cities. My name is Spencer. I am the College and Young Professionals pastor here. And if you are new, for the last four weeks, we have been reading through the book of Daniel. And so the big theme of the book of Daniel is what happens when conviction and culture collide. And so we've been spending the last four weeks reading about how Daniel and his friends, they were living in Babylon and Babylon was trying to get them to conform to the culture. Babylon wanted Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar wanted those guys to just bow to the idols of that time. But what we see in Daniel and what we're going to talk about today is instead of being conformed to the culture, Daniel and his friends were instead transformed. Now, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian in here, surely you can see that our culture is changing rapidly. You know, in the past, cultural revolutions moral changes, changes in thinking, all those things happened, but normally those would take take place over the span of centuries. But what we're seeing now is that those same changes are taking place, but now they're taking place over the span of just a generation. Secular analysts will say that we are living at a time of rapid change that we have never experienced before, really, in the history of mankind. And so just a couple of statistics to illustrate this. 20 years ago, 31% of U.S. adults thought that marijuana should be legalized. Today, 67% think it should be legalized. 20 years ago, 35% of U.S. adults were in favor of same-sex marriage being legalized. And now, today, it's 63%. Some things that didn't exist 20 years ago. YouTube, Facebook, the Toyota Prius didn't exist (laughs) 20 years ago. Um, Smartphones, Bluetooth. And even MySpace wasn't invented 20 years ago. And I know some of you high school students are saying, what is MySpace? Come talk with me afterwards, and I'll explain it to you. (laughs) Ten years ago, 30% of Americans thought that pornography was morally acceptable. And then today, 43% believe it's acceptable. Ten years ago, three out of every ten adults had a smartphone. And now, eight out of ten U.S. adults have a smartphone. And so that means that a handful of you in here are still holding strong with a flip phone, Um, Hang in there. Um, Things that didn't exist 10 years ago. The iPad, Instagram, Pinterest didn't exist 10 years ago. The band One Direction didn't exist 10 years ago. (laughs) And I know some of you are thinking those were the good old days. And I agree. Um, The Apple Watch wasn't even invented until five years ago. And so, as you can see, the culture is changing. And the question we are going to consider today is, is what, of, what is God asking of me in this constantly changing culture? How do I navigate life with the Word of God pulling me in one direction and the culture pulling me in the other? And so, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 today. We're going to read through verses 1 through 2. So, these verses are really the New Testament summary of Daniel's life. So, we're going to be taking a break from the book of Daniel today, and we're going to read... In Romans chapter 1 through 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so what Paul is saying here is he first starts off by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, to live as a sacrifice. So Paul is saying, I implore you. I, some older versions will say, I beseech you. He says, I really, really want you to live as a sacrifice. Please consider what I'm saying. Now, the therefore in this text is the whole hinge of the book of Romans. The, the book of Romans really sort of takes a turn at this therefore. And, you know, pastors love to get up here and say, well, if you see the word therefore, you know, you have to ask, what is it therefore? But the basis of Paul's therefore in this text is Romans chapter 1 through 11. When Paul says the mercies of God, what he is referring to is the explanation of the gospel that was laid out in Romans 1 through 11. And so I'm just going to sort of summarize Romans 1 through 11. It says in Romans 3.10, it says, There is none righteous, not even one. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, sure, you might be able to compare yourself to your neighbor or to your classmate or to your coworker, And you might think, well, in comparison to them, you know, I'm pretty good. You know, I feel like I am much more of a moral person than they are. But what this verse is saying is that in comparison to the perfection of Christ, you're not even close. Let's say that I was standing on a beach in Wilmington. And let's say that for whatever reason, someone told me that I have to swim from Wilmington all the way to Cape Town, South Africa, which is 8,000 miles, or else I drown. Now I feel like I'm a decent swimmer. I feel like I'm at least average. And so I think I could probably swim maybe three or four miles and then I'll probably drown. Some of you who are <laughs> swimmers in here are probably thinking you couldn't even swim that far, which might be right. Um, let's say that Michael Phelps was also standing with me on that beach. And I know he's not a long-distance swimmer, but bear with me. Um, Michael Phelps is, you know, he's the best of the best. And here we have someone who, what they do for a living is swim well. And so he'd, he'd take off, and he would probably swim 15, maybe 20 miles and then, you know, 20 miles later, he would drown. And so in comparison to how far I swam, man, he swam, he swam four times as far. But in comparison to how far we both had to go, he, he's not really that much closer to South Africa than I was. I mean, we were both so far away. And this is what this passage is saying, is that all of us fall short of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We go on to see in Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of sin is death. But then comes the good news. It says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says in Romans 5, 8, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that raises the question, well, well, how do I get the righteousness of God? How, do, how is God's perfection imputed to me? And it says in Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, and it is with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. And so, this is good news. This is the mercies of God that Paul is referring to here in verse 1. And so, the big idea here is that God saves us because he is merciful, not because we are moral. God saves us because he is merciful, not because we are moral. So what mercy is, is mercy is showing someone forgiveness who actually deserves punishment. In Romans 1 through 11, that's really what Paul is explaining, is he is explaining how all of us in here are in deserve, we are deserving of punishment, but instead God has shown us mercy. And so, and this is really a different idea from religion. You know, what religion says is that if you do this, then your salvation will be done to you. The gospel says you were given salvation free as a gift, and in response to what you've been given, then you're probably going to want to do. And this is a theme throughout the Bible. It's not just a New Testament idea. In Exodus chapter 20, God's talking to the people of Israel, and he says, I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so God says, this is what I have done. And then In the very next verse, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he goes on to give the rest of the Ten Commandments. And so this is God saying, this is what I have done for you to save you. Then this is what you should do in response. Let's go back to verse one. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what this passage is saying is that in view of the gospel, in view of the mercies of God, you and I are called to be living sacrifices. And so so what is a living sacrifice? Well, living sacrifice is a little bit of an oxymoron. So what an oxymoron is, is two apparently contradictory terms. And so it's like jumbo shrimp or bittersweet or love-hate relationship. Or airplane food. You know, don't really go together. You get it. Um, And so living sacrifice is is the same way. But for, for, for living sacrifice to make sense to us, we have to understand at least a little bit about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. So when Paul was writing this letter, the people who were reading it would have had a very good understanding of what a sacrifice was. So basically in the Old Testament, what would happen is that a priest or a worshiper would bring an animal to an altar... And they would sacrifice that animal um, in order to appease God. Um, but in the Old Testament, the, these sacrifices were, were not sacrifices where the animal was left living. Like the, the animal was not crawling off the altar afterwards saying, well, that was tough. I'm, I'm going to go back to doing my own thing. No, the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were what the anim- animals were dying. And the two main things that a sacrifice in the Old Testament would show was this. One is the Old Testament sacrifices would show that sin leads to death. The, the Old Testament sacrifices show us the deadly cost of sin. We, we covered this in Romans 6.23, that for, all, or for the wages of sin is death. And so the second thing that, it, that they show us is God's provision for our atonement. Because we know from the book of Hebrews that nobody was saved by the sacrifice of an animal. It says in Hebrews that the blood of bulls or goats is unable to save anybody. But what was happening was that by the sacrifice of an animal, by the shedding of its blood, God's wrath was held back for a time. And we know that at the cross, God's wrath was no longer held back. Because Jesus on the cross bore the full wrath of God in the place of anyone who would ultimately believe in him and place faith in what he has done. And so we are called to be living sacrifices. But, you know, the biggest biggest difference between an Old Testament sacrifice and a New Testament sacrifice is an Old Testament sacrifice was something that was done in order to appease God or to hold off his wrath. Whereas a New Testament sacrifice is something that is offered to God in response to our salvation. We aren't giving him a sacrifice to earn our salvation, but rather in response to our salvation. But the problem with being a living sacrifice is that a living sacrifice keeps wanting to get up off the altar. I mean, this is us. A living sacrifice is always wanting to get off the altar. What we want as Christians is we want our sacrifices to be minimally painful. We want to just sort of get it over with and then keep going on about our day. We really want to experience pain from a sacrifice, sort of like we experience our flu shot every year. You know, with your flu shot, it's like, all right, just get it over with. It's going to hurt for... Just a couple seconds, and then it's gonna feel like somebody punched me in the arm for like two days, and then that's gonna be it. We want our sacrifices to be minimally painful. For last a short period of time and not have any long-lasting effects. But being a living sacrifice means that we have to continually re-offer ourselves to God. When you become a Christian, you're not saying, Lord, I give give myself to you today, and then tomorrow you're going back to do your own thing. No, no, no. Being a living sacrifice means it is a continual presenting yourself to God as a sacrifice. It's more than just a one-time gift to an offering and then cleaning your hands and being done. It's a continual posture of generosity. And so, the question to consider is, in what area of your life are you crawling off the altar? Because crawling off the altar is really, is really just disobedience. That, that's another sort of way to summarize crawling off the altar, disobedience. What area of your life, when you think about it, are you crawling off the altar? Some of you are saying, God, you know, I'm going to live for you, you know, for the most part, but when it comes to my private life, I'm going to sort of crawl off the altar. Or you'll say, God, I'm living for you in almost every area except with what I do with my money. Or except with what I do on Friday nights, or except with, you know, how I spend my time. And you know, I understand that being a living sacrifice is not something that's easy. You know, we we all have the tendency to want to crawl off the altar. That's why you need to be in a community group. That's why you need to be known by people so that others can help you get back on the altar. We we need community. Are your future plans on the altar to God? When you think about your future and what you have in the upcoming years, are your future plans on the altar to God? What comes first in your life? Is it career or is it mission? How many of you, if you felt like God was was calling you to move somewhere for mission, you would say, yeah, you know, I'll I'll think about it. You know, I might pray about it a little bit. But if if your boss called you and said, hey, your company is moving to Charlotte or Raleigh or Atlanta and we need you to move. How many of you would not think twice before packing your bags? I mean, I think there's there's many of us. So, what comes first? Is it mission or is it your career? Many of you probably know the story of Jim Elliott. And uh, he was, Jim Elliott was a man in the 1950s who, along with four other missionaries, were martyred in Ecuador by some Indians that they were trying to reach for Christ. And one of the guys, that he's not as famous as Jim Elliot, One of the guys' names was Ed McCulley. So Ed McCulley was in his early 20s when he felt like God was calling him to the mission field. And he actually finished his first, first year of law school. And then right before he started his second year, he felt like God was calling him to... You know, go into the mission field. And so he said this in a letter to Jim Elliott. So he wrote a, he wrote a letter to his friend Jim Elliott at the time. This was written on September 20th, 1950. And, and I love letters like this. They get me really excited. Um, he said this, I've been spending my, fr- my free time studying the word. The Lord has been dealing with me. I have one desire now to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my energy and strength into it. Maybe he'll send me someplace where the name of Jesus Christ is unknown. I'm taking the Lord at his word and I'm trusting him to prove his word. It's kind of like putting all your eggs in one basket, but we've already put our trust in him for salvation. So why not do it as far as our life is concerned? And so what he's saying here is that if we can trust God for our salvation, then surely we can trust him with the rest of our lives. And the big idea here is that surrender your life fully to God because of the mercies of God. Surrender your life fully to God because of the mercies of God. It was clear that Ed McCulley's, God was calling him to put his future plans on the altar and being a lawyer and instead go to the mission field. And this is what we are called to do in similar fashion. This leads me back to verse 1. It says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the word spiritual here is actually translated from the word logikos, which is where we get the word logical from. Or it also could be translated to reasonable or rational. And so what Paul's saying here is that in view of the mercies of God, in view of what God has done to save you, the only reasonable, rational response is to give your life to God in response to, to, to what he has done. You know, the logical response to what God has done is surrender. The logical response is more than just a thank you, God. I appreciate it. I'm going to go back to doing my own thing. Now, I understand surrender is hard. Like, surrender goes against the American uh, just ideal that says, you know, just do whatever you want, whenever you want, and everything's all about you. Surrender is really the opposite of selfishness. Surrender and selfishness are totally the opposite. But what surrender says, and it says, I'm not in control but I'm giving myself over to whoever is in control. And so this is what we are called to do. So let's go to verse two. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so first this passage tells us, don't be conformed. And then it says, be transformed. And so what Paul does is he gives us the negative command before he gives us the positive command. Now, this is really how, what it's like when you teach anyone anything. Like if a two-year-old has a screwdriver in her hand and she's walking towards an electrical outlet, that's not really a moment for a lot of positive teaching to be going on. That, like, you're going to be like, no, 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 no. You're going to ne- give her the negative command. And then afterwards, you might do some positive you know, teaching. Um, m- my wife, Olivia, she, she did not grow up playing golf. Um, only putt-putt, which doesn't really help much on the golf, only on the golf course. Um, and a couple of months ago, we went to play at a par-3 course with my family. And I was trying to teach Olivia, you know, how to swing and how to hit a golf ball. And so much of my instruction to her was just negative commands. I was just telling her what not to do, like, don't pick your head up before you hit the ball. Don't bend your left arm so much. Like, don't tee your ball up so high. And, And, you know, I was telling her these things because the desired outcome was for her to, you know, hit the ball straight, right? And, you know, it actually turns out that, you know, she didn't like being told what not to do. And so she asked my brother to help her instead of me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, th- this is the same way. You know, we are, we are told what not to do. So do not conform in order for us to be transformed. Um, but what you have to understand is that the world is trying to conform you. Like surely you can see this. The world is absolutely trying to conform you. There are so many things in this world right now where the world is holding up a picture to you and they're saying, when you look at this picture, you need to see X. And if you don't see X, then mm, that's not a good thing. The, The world is trying to conform you. What it means to be conformed is basically to fit into a mold. And so one of the things that the world is trying to tell you is that morality is relative. The world says morality is relative Everyone gets to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. You know, who, who are you to tell me what's, what's, what's wrong? Like, like, how dare you tell me that the way I'm living my life is wrong? This is what the world is saying, right? Uh, that, that morality is relative and that morality is changing. There, there was a study done a couple years ago by a sociologist. His name was Christian Smith. And he did a study on U.S. young adults, And what he found was that U.S. adults have two views of morality that are actually in contradiction. The first thing is that young adults tend to not believe in moral absolutes. Most young adults don't believe in moral absolutes. And so what a moral absolute is, is something that is absolutely right or it's absolutely wrong 100% of the time, regardless of the culture, regardless of how you feel about it. And so an example of a moral absolute would be that being physically abusive to an infant is wrong. Like that's a moral absolute, and so the first thing he found, most young adults don't believe in moral absolutes, but the second thing, which just doesn't really make sense, is that most young adults hold very strong moral stances that they insist that you should honor, and so, in theory, they say I'm a moral I'm a moral relativist. You know, in theory, your your view of what's right is no better than what my my view is, but. In their interactions with others, they demand that they, you know, they demand that they sort of bow to their personal view. And I think this is important to say, and this is very against what the culture is telling you, and that is that truth is not inside of you, and truth is not evolving. Truth is not inside of you, and truth is not evolving. The Christian belief for the last 2,000 years has been truth is outside of you, and it is fixed. We believe that God has revealed to us in the scriptures what is right and what is wrong. And what he says is right and wrong, it doesn't matter what we think about it. It's what he said. We believe that God has revealed to us this standard. And because he has revealed to us this standard, we can navigate life because he has made known to us what is right and what is wrong. But this is much different from what the culture says when it says, you know, you can believe whatever you want. I've, I've, had conver- I've had conversations with college students, and it's a really interesting conversations because they'll say something like, "Well, I, I believe in moral absolutes. I just don't believe that those moral absolutes come from the Bible," which that raises a lot of other questions. It's like, well, if you, if you believe in moral absolutes, but it's not from the Bible, well, where do you get your idea of right and wrong from? Or what makes your view of morality correct? Or does it really make sense for a God to create a standard? and not reveal to people what that standard is? And so it just raises a lot of questions. But the reality is that if, if morality is relative, then you cannot make a truth claim about, it, about anything. Um, the world says morality is relative. Christianity says morality is fixed. Another thing the world is telling you is that you always need more. There was a study done a couple years ago by, I believe it was Media Dynamics that did it. And they, they found that adults in the United States over in one day, on, on average, that they are, they are exposed to 360 ads per day. And so they looked at the five biggest media outlets, which were magazine and TV, newspaper, Internet, and one other one. And they saw that U.S. adults are exposed to 360 ads per day. And so 360 times per day, you are being told, like, what you have is not cool anymore. Or you're being told that you are not content, it's just sowing seeds of discontentment in us. I mean, I can can feel this, I mean, I feel like all I have to do is get on Amazon one time and look up some Adidas shoes, and for the next month, all I see online is just advertisements for Adidas shoes. I mean, I feel like I can just think about Adidas shoes half the time, (laughs) and you know, advertisements, that's all it is. Society is telling you is that, that what you need to do is you need to get and to keep and to have and, and, the, and this is different from the biblical worldview that says, you know, stuff, you know, stuff is not inherently, inherently bad. It's not bad to have Adidas shoes. But those things are not going to satisfy you. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who was a um, mathematician from France in the 1600s, he wrote this um, about this idea. And many of you probably remember Blaise Pascal. Um, Pascal's triangle in high school geometry was probably something you learned about, but most of you probably don't remember that. Um, He said this. He says, There is a God shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And so, what the world says is you always need more. Christianity says that you need to look to God for your ultimate satisfaction because more stuff is not going to satisfy you. The world is trying to tell you that you need to embrace the American dream. They say that the pinnacle of life is for you to have a good job and a family and kids and a backyard with you know, a white picket fence and you have a dog and your 401k looks great and you don't really have to sacrifice anything. That's what the world tells you. This is different from the Bible, which says that all those things are good. Yes, a family is good. Yes, even dogs are good. But none of those things are going to ultimately satisfy you. And I'm sure if you've been alive for any amount of time, surely you can see that the line just keeps moving on you. And what I mean by that is, I can think back to when I was 14, and I thought, you know, I just can't wait until I get my driver's permit. And then I turn 15, I get my driver's permit, and then immediately it's like, for me to be content, I I need my license. I just can't wait until I get my license. And then, you know, it just keeps going. It's like, well, I can't wait to get to college. And then it's, I can't wait to get out of this dorm room and move into an apartment. And then it's, well, I can't wait to, you know, buy my own house someday and get a job. And then it turns into, well, I can't wait to have this house paid off. I'm tired of paying this mortgage every month. I mean, this is what happens, is that we are just a very discontent people. And the world tells you, you know, what you need is more stuff. But we know just from experience that more stuff is not going to satisfy you because the line just keeps on moving. The book of Ecclesiastes, it, it talks about how God has put eternity in our hearts, And what that means is that your earthly desires or so many of the desires of your heart will not be met by earthly things. So many of the desires of your heart will be satisfied by God and God alone. And so the the remedy to not being conformed, we see here in verse two, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so for the Christian, conversion is an event like when you when you become a Christian you go from not Christian to Christian immediately it's it's not a process but after you are converted transformation is something that slowly happens so we get the word transformation from metamorpho so metamorpho is where we get the idea of metamorphosis from and so this is the same idea when it comes to like a like a uh, or a caterpillar turned into a butterfly or a tadpole to a frog. Uh, last week, I spent like nine minutes watching a YouTube video on the trans- transformation process from a tadpole all the way to a frog. And so basically, just to sort of summarize, I'm not going to take nine minutes. Basically, on day, two, on day one, the mama, mama frog hatches like 200 little eggs. Day two, those little eggs start to swim. One weekend. they're now tadpoles and they can swim around. And then a month in, they get their back legs. And then a month and a half in, they get their front legs. And then two months, they lose their tails and their frogs. And that's a pretty good picture of what it looks like for the believer after they are converted. You are transformed slowly from the inside out. And the big idea here is the mercies of God will empower change. The mercies of God will empower change. Now, some of you in here need to hear this. You can change. I mean, this is good news. You need to be encouraged that you can change. I know some of you in here are frustrated because you're thinking, you know, I thought that I would be further along than I am now. I thought that after walking with Jesus for two years or five years or 10 years or however long, that I wouldn't still have the same impulses that I have. I thought that I wouldn't be as angry. I thought that I wouldn't be as just selfish as I am now. But what you have to understand is that sanctification is a process. See, what sanctification is, is sanctification is just becoming the godliest version of yourself. And this takes time. It does not happen overnight. I was talking to a friend of mine named Frankie. Frankie. He, um, He lives in Georgia now. And he told me that a friend of his became a Christian recently, and this friend was not a Christian in college. And apparently, this guy in college was just like, wild. I mean, just like parties, drugs, you name it. This guy was doing it back in college. But recently, this guy became a Christian, and he joined Frankie's community group. And um, sometime not long ago, they were—they had at community group, and they had broken up into guys and girls. And the guys were in one room, and and the guy was sitting there, and he said, hey, guys, uh, I really need you guys to, to pray for me. Because um, this weekend I'm going on a bachelor party to New Orleans, and I'm going with some high school buddies of mine, and, and you know they don't bring out the best of me at all. And then he looked at them, and he was dead serious when he when he said this. He, he wasn't joking. He said, "Just just so we're clear, even though I'm a new Christian now, I'm still not allowed to do cocaine or go to strip clubs." And and. Like he was not joking. And, and so when you hear that, if, if, you've been, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, you hear that question say, well, of course it's not okay to do cocaine and go to strip clubs. But this just goes to show that this guy who was genuinely converted, you know, he has not been sanctified yet. That sanctification is something that happens slowly over time. Well, that raised the question, the question of how does sanctification happen? And we see it here. It says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So it says, the, the way that your mind is renewed is by pressing more deeply into the gospel. The way your mind is renewed is by reading the Bible regularly, by being in community, by you know, praying. Like, these are the ways that our minds are transformed slowly over time. And as, your desires, as, your desires, or as, your, as you become more transformed, your desires are going to change, and your desires will be more consistent with what desires are. Now like I said, of all the places that you could be, the church ought to be the place where you are told that you can change. Like are you really quick tempered? Do you are you just filled with anger? You can change. Do you basically have no knowledge of the Bible? You can change that. Are you really impatient with your kids? That is something that you can change. Are you struggling with an addiction? You can change. Are you paralyzed by fear of the future? You can change that. The Christian message is to come as you are, but it's not to stay as you are. You know, we say here, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there because God's not going to leave you in the mess. And so yes, come as you are, but we are called as believers to not stay as we are because God wants us to be transformed. Let's go to verse 2. It says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so um, the big idea here is that as you are transformed, as you become a new person, then you are going to better understand what God's will is. The more you know God, the more you will know what his will is for certain situations. So I work as a PA in gastroenterology throughout the week. And what I do is I care for patients with different problems with their liver or their pancreas or really just anything in the abdomen. And um, and just for the record, I'm like Chick-fil-A. I don't work on Sundays. And so don't come up to me afterwards (laughs) asking me a question about your constipation. I'm just going to give you a business card and tell you to make an office visit. Um, But but what I do as a PA, I work with a handful of different doctors, and all the doctors are great. They've been practicing medicine for a long time. Most of them have been practicing for at least 10 years, some of them even over 20 years. And the the longer that I have worked alongside these doctors, the, the more I become aware of what their preferences are, because each of them has a different style. Each of them has sort of different ways they like to go about things. And as I've gotten to know them better and better, the more easy it is for act, easier it is for me to act in ways that are consistent with how they would act, or it's easier for me to make decisions that are consistent with how they would make decisions. And this is the same thing for us, is that as we are transformed, as we become more familiar with God's character, then we too are going to know exactly what he wants to do, or not, maybe not exactly what to do, but we are going to have a better idea of what God wants for us in certain situations. And so I have a handful of questions for us to consider here. Um, you know, this text calls us to give our lives over to God as an act of worship. And so some of you may say, well, I just don't think that I can give my life over to something. Like, I just really don't think that I can totally give myself over to really anything. But what you have to see is that you already are giving your life over to something. It's just a matter of what you're giving it over to. And so if you are not offering your life to God as a living sacrifice, my question is, what, what, what are you worshiping? Because you are definitely worshiping something. Another way to think about this is what are you willing to sacrifice for? Because sacrifice and worship go hand in hand. I was thinking about this for myself, and it was actually convicting. I think that the thing that I worship often is being connected. And so what this looks like is I spend a lot of time just being very attentive to my phone, just staying really up to date with news I'm really in touch with my friends often, and so what I end up sacrificing is being really attentive to my wife, Olivia, or I sacrifice being in the moment in a lot of different scenarios. Maybe it's your career. Maybe some of you in here are for sure worshiping your career. You know, careers are not a bad thing. Like, yes, you should work hard at your job. Your job is not a bad thing, but some of you in here are spending just so much time at work, you're just giving so much of your energy to work that you're sacrificing your family in order to do so. You're you're sacrificing your relationship with your kids or with your spouse because you just are working too much. You're not taking your paid time off. You know, you're just spending too much time at the office. And and so really, I think you should ask yourself, are you willing to sacrifice your relationship with your kids or with your spouse for work? Are you missing your your kid's seven-year-old or... Are you missing your seven-year-old's soccer game on Tuesday night at um, like seven o'clock because you can't get home from the office? I mean, this is something that we have to consider. And honestly, I think that a lot of times the reason we end up worshiping work is because we are really worshiping financial security. Some of you in here are willing to sacrifice a lot for financial security. You're willing to sacrifice your integrity to make business deals. You're willing to sacrifice honesty by cutting corners on your taxes you're willing to sacrifice honesty by running your, bi- your business in a way that's just a little bit dishonest, not a lot dishonest, but just a little bit, like so small that if someone were to ask you about it, that you would be able to pretty easily explain it away. Are you willing to lie to get ahead financially? Because if you are, then that might be an indicator that one of the things that you are worshiping is financial security. Maybe it's your reputation. Some of you in here are so concerned about your reputation that you're willing to sacrifice a lot for it. You are completely sacrificing your convictions and you are just refusing to take strong stances on certain issues because you care so much about what others think about you. You care so much about what your coworkers think and it's causing you to just fold in so many ways. A friend of mine and a member of this church, he, he moved to Winston a couple years ago and he took a job as a manager in a company. And pretty early on, I think like one weekend, he, he had a conversation with a senior manager, or I think it was a manager who was right above him. And I don't know exactly how this came up, but politics came up, and he ended up sharing with her that, that he is pro-life. And as soon as he told her that, she immediately tried to go get him fired. And... The good news of this story is that he actually ended up not getting fired, and he actually has been able to share the gospel with his coworker over the last couple of years because he has built a relationship with her. But so many of you are in that kind of situation, which just automatically fold. And, and we as Christians are called to maintain our convictions. I've heard someone say that in, that Christians should, in matters of disagreement, our beliefs should not be edgy. Or our, our attitude and our tone should not be edgy, but our beliefs should have edges, if that makes sense. Um, I should have written that down so I could have brought it up here. But, um, but you know, the biggest question that I, that I want to ask um, this morning is, have you offered your life to God? Have you offered your life to God? Have you said, God, here's my life. Here's who I am. This is how you've wired me. Would you just use me, use my giftings to somehow make you known? Because this passage makes it clear that the appropriate response to what God has done for you is to offer him your life. It's, it's not just a thank you, God, I appreciate it. It's offering him your life. Because some of you in here, are, are you're here and you just want just a little bit of religion in your life. You, you've come and you sit and you're here because you know that we have great worship. We have you know, great community here and it's just a good place to come on Sundays. But if you are coming here and expecting to just sacrifice just a little bit, or if you are coming to church because you just want just to sacrifice a little bit and hope to get something out of it, this is really not the place. Because what religion says is, give a little bit here, and then you're going to get something out of it. The gospel says, in response to what God has done in Christ, you are the sacrifice. It's you. And so the only deal that Jesus will make to you is all of you for all of him. All of you for all of him. We are called to be a living sacrifice in this way. Many of you have probably seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. It is a movie that came out in 1998, and I'm going to spoil it, but you've had over 20 years to watch it, so (laughs) it's not my fault. But basically, in Saving Private Ryan, it's uh, the whole idea or the whole sort of center theme of the movie is, is there's a group of 10 guys that are trying to find and save Private James Ryan, who is a soldier who had three of his brothers killed in the war already. And the reason they wanted him saved is because it was going to be bad publicity to have four brothers die. And so throughout the movie, all 10 of these characters are doing every, everything they can to find Private Ryan. And over the course of the film, a lot of the characters die. That They die trying to find Private Ryan. Um, A lot of these characters, we don't even know what their names are. They're just supporting characters who are just giving their lives for Private Ryan. And what you have to understand is your life, or with your life, you have the chance to be a character in a movie. And there are really two options. The first option is the option that the world wants you to take. The world says you need to be the main character of your movie, that everything needs to be about you, That what matters more than anything is your comfort and your safety and your happiness. And if you want to, you can live life that way. You can live the next 5, 10, 50 years of your life, and you can be the main character. And what's going to happen is, you know, whenever your time comes, you know, people will show up at your funeral, and and they'll they'll say some nice things, and then the credits on your life movie are going to start to roll, and then that's going to be it. The credits are going to stop, and that's it. And then 100 years from now, nobody's going to remember anything about you, honestly. So that's option one. Option two is you can let the Lord Jesus Christ be the main character in your life movie. And what that will mean is that, you know, there's only one main character. You will have to take the role of a minor character. And yes, no one will remember your name. Yes, you are going to have to make sacrifices for the main character. But when you die, which is going to happen, when you die, the movie that you have wrapped your life up in is going to keep going and going and going because you have wrapped up your life in the story of someone's life or in the story that's going to keep going and going and going. You have wrapped your life up in the story of Jesus and who he was and what he has done to save people all over the world. Jesus' story of redemption, of hope, of restoration, of mercy and grace, that is the story That if you want to, you can give your life over to. Have you offered your life to God? You see, one of the good things about becoming a Christian and giving your life over to God is that Jesus was not like Private Ryan. Jesus did not need anyone to come save him. Jesus didn't, didn't come, um, we, he doesn't need us to come and be the savior for him and save him from his enemies. Jesus instead came to earth in order to save those who were his enemies, which is all of us. And this is good news. This is the mercies of God that we are called to give our lives over to. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a, you are a God who, who was the ultimate sacrifice. Lord, you came and you lived the perfect life and you died the death that we deserved for us. And Lord, I just praise you and I just thank you for that. And God, I ask that, that you would give those in this room the courage to give their lives over to you in response, to offer their futures to you, to offer their private time to you, to offer their finances to you. Lord, we need your help. We cannot do it on our own. And so I ask that you, in a mighty way, would encourage those in this room to offer themselves to you in response to what you have done for them. Lord, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy, and that you are a God who saves. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.